0: It's one of those long, empty afternoons, and I'm staring at my bookshelf, wondering what to read. I'm looking at the neat rows of many unread titles, but my hand goes, almost instinctively, to pull out one that's familiar, its spine ridged by repeated use. The book falls open to a spot that's been remembered, not by one of the many pretty bookmarks I've collected, but by my constant thumbing back to it because it speaks to me in a particular way. Welcome to Reading For Our Times, the podcast that celebrates books and reading and the power of the written word spoken out loud. I'm Usha Raman. In this episode, we have a selection of old favorites, pieces we return to time and again when the mood takes us, words that we pull off our shelves or out of our memories just because we want to feel something again. To know something again, to return to a moment of excitement or awe or insight that has shifted something inside us. The four readings that I've put together, apart from my own, are each very different and picked out by the readers for varied reasons. The strange thing is, as we listen to them, we find something, a thread, a note, a sentiment that resonates in this moment. Ashish Pitti reads an essay by Brian Doyle that he chose, he says, because of the tempered rage in it, reflecting what's on many minds in this age of arrogant, hubris-filled leadership. Malini Wagre selects a piece from the work of Nobel Prize winner Thomas Transtromer, which, she says, stopped her from focusing on her own existential angst in this time under lockdown. Divya Bharat, who reads from an old work of narrative nonfiction, a retelling of a rescue mission in the 1970s, says that she's always been fascinated by Israel and the Mossad and considers this to be one of their most adventurous, successful, intuitive, and well-planned operations. This is followed by two short extracts from one of my own favorite writers, Ian McEwan. And we end with Amita Desai's reading of John Donne's poem, For Whom the Bell Tolls, a particularly resonant piece as we live through this global crisis, experienced by some and witnessed by others.
1: Hi, I'm Ashish Pitti, and I would like to read you an essay by Brian Doyle, Testimonium. I was at a conference the other day and there was a reception and people were making small talk and i was happily babbling about sports because one advantage to being a guy is that almost all guys are aware of sports and have an opinion or affiliation or affection or detestation of some team or sport or player thereof, when somehow the conversation swung to politics, which is dangerous ground because people get heated without having the slightest grip on fact, and one guy, why is it always a guy, started sneering courteously about someone else's opinion, and I made a joke to decaffeinate his snare, and he sneered slightly too politely that humour is the refuge of cowards, and a synapse popped in my brain, and I delivered a speech that went something like this. Really. So Mark Twain was a coward? And Will Rogers and Robin Williams and the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu were cowards? Bob Hope, who visited a million soldiers where they were huddled under bullets and rockets and mortars and mud and fear, he was a coward? Jesus, with his wry, puzzling conundrum remarks, he was a coward? People who try to deflect and diffuse moments pregnant with blood and bruises and death are cowards? Is that so? People who use their brains to figure out ways around fists and sticks and iron pipes and knives and guns are cowards. People who get it that we are issued imagination in order to invent new ways to be other than the old ways where the biggest, most sociopathic among us snatched whatever and whoever they wanted. Those people are cowards. People who make other people laugh during which time no one is raped or beaten or imprisoned. Those people are cowards. People who consciously and deliberately and with cheerful intent make other people laugh so that everyone cools out and people start to drop their masks and disguises and defences and personas and assumptions, those people are cowards? People who foment laughter, (coughs) knowing that laughter actually, no kidding, drops blood pressure and warms up rooms and urges wallflowers an inch or two away from the walls, those people are cowards? Define coward for me, if you will, because... You have me confused and puzzled here about what is cowardly and what is brave. Does brave mean bloody to you? So that antithesis of coward is someone who heats things up pushes people closer to the wall, elevates their anger, forces masks and disguises and defences back to tighter than before that guy is not a coward. Is that right? Because I think a guy who sneers is an arrogant, pompous, self-absorbed ass. And I think that humour is a great weapon against that sort of arrogance. And I think that arrogance so very often leads to violence. And I think the worst slimy murderers in history were all arrogant, pompous fatheads who were convinced that they knew best. And they were the smartest guys in the room and whatever twisted vision they had of the world and its future was the only right and true one. And they are all roasting in the lowest cellars in hell and everyone roasting down there with them has one thing in common. A preening, sneering, narcissistic arrogance that polluted the world for exactly as long as they were allowed to foul it with their presence in this life. Am I making myself clear? Is there any other prim, stupid, sneering thing you want to say at this juncture? because I think we have come to the point in this conversation where small talk just scuttled off hurriedly into the distance and it's time for you to stride off angrily, or time for us all to start telling entertaining stories in order to see under our masks and maybe get to some common ground in the few minutes we have before the next panel session begins. No cutting remark to get your sneer back on? No? Good. I'll start. The eight stupidest things I have ever done in this life in order are
2: Poetry is transformative and transformers' depth with words is truly miracle speech, as Teju Cole calls it. However, if you're not a performer, reading poems to bring that magic into your voice is hard. Hi, my name is Malini Wargrave and I'm an ethnographer. Today I would like to read a poem from the book The Unfinished Heaven by the Swedish poet Thomas Transtroma. This is translated by Robert Bly. Transtroma won the Nobel Prize for his poetry in 2011 for his short 200-page body of work. Here I go with the poem Standing Up. In a split second of hard thought, I managed to catch her. I stopped holding the hen in my hands. Strange, she didn't really feel living. Dry and old white plume-ridden lady's hat that shrieked out the truths of 1912. Thunder in the air. An odor rose from the fence boards as when you open a photo album that has got so old that no one can identify the people any longer. I carried her back inside the chicken netting and let her go. All of a sudden, she came back to life. She knew who she was and ran off according to the rules. Henyards are thick with taboos, but the earth all around is full of affection and tenacity. (laughs) A low stone wall half overgrown with leaves. When dusk begins to fall, the stones are faintly luminous with the hundred-year-old warmth from the hands that built it. It's been a hard winter, but summer is here, and the fields want us to walk upright. Every man unimpeded, but careful, as when you stand up in a small boat. I remember a day in Africa, on the banks of the River Chari. There were many boats, an atmosphere of positively friendly. The men almost blue-black in color with three paddle scars on each cheek meaning the Sara tribe. I'm welcomed on a boat. It's canoe hollowed from a dark tree. The canoe is incredibly rocky even when you sit on your heels. A balancing act. If you have the heart on the left side you have to lean a bit to the right nothing in the pockets no big arm movements please all rhetoric has to be left behind it's necessary rhetoric will ruin everything the canoe glides out over the water
3: thank you Hi, I'm Divya and I'm going to read a small portion from the book called uh, 90 Minutes at NTB. Uh, This is an inside story of Operation Thunderbolt uh, which is the Israeli strike against uh, terrorism where they go into the heart of uh, Uganda and actually rescue 103 uh, hostages and uh, this is one of the best uh, operations ever, uh, not only by the Mozart but uh, I guess uh, uh, in in the history as well so this uh, this is just a small portion of the book navigating with the aid of the anteby airport radio beacon the hippos approached their objective just one more correction shortly before arrival because of weather difficulties and down below the pilots saw uganda shoreline illuminated by a crescent moon low on the horizon Inside the leading Hercules, Yoni and nine commandos were crammed into the pre-painted Mercedes, first in line before the rear ramp. Their faces were black. Their hands and Uganda-type pistols fitted with silencers were also coated in black. The Mercedes was black. They had not brought with them the dummy president. That particular deception was dangerous in light of last-minute intelligence that Uganda's president had returned to Entebbe earlier in the day. It could be embarrassing if two big daddies confronted one another. The transport plane split into two pairs. Antibi Airport was approached by one pair aiming to land on the main new runway. The second pair were to land on the old runway, which is separated from the airport's modern extension by a slight rise in the ground. The fleet covered the 10-minute leg of the 17-hour flight at a sharply reduced speed of 180 miles an hour. They were within reach of the target at ETA calculated at Tel Aviv. Operational planners were delighted and slightly astonished. The four Hercules had followed a difficult route comparable to a non-stop journey from New York to Moscow without visual bearings or radio contacts, maintaining radio silence and holding positions relative to the leader where in-flight decisions were made by the Pathfinder. The Pathfinder said later, we hit Antibi on the nose. At the hour when it was felt that the Ugandans could be sleepy, but the hostages not yet dangerously drugged with sleep, we hoped to catch some of the terrorists relaxed after drinking in Kaplana, 21 miles away. The soldiers knew the hazards of the flight. They saw the lightning and I felt sorry for them because nothing worse than sitting idle in bad storm, hour after hour. Whenever I climbed down into the cargo hold, half the men were sprawled on the metal floor and the other half were rechecking notes or systematically disposing of documents. For them, it should have been an agonizing seven hours. That's a hell long of time groping through a void. The pathfinder crept over the unseen waters of Lake Victoria, hanging the great bird on four props trusting the lives of his crew and fifty commandos to the accuracy of the radar scopes glowing in the dark. Shreds of mist condensed against the huge flight deck windows and teardrops of moisture were flung back along the quivering perfects. The big wipers rocked rhythmically. Suddenly, runway lights appeared ahead. David blinked back fatigue and checked his instruments. Flying blind, a pilot is quickly disoriented. Airliners have tried to land upside down on the Milky Way when pilots transferred their eyes from instruments to visual contacts with the world outside and mistook stars for ground vehicles. David concentrated on the dimly lit panels that told him that he was flying straight and level on to be for some incredible reason was fully lit. This was the moment over which so much argument had taken place in Tel Aviv. If the first Hercules got down and taxied and muted motors to the old passenger lounge without arousing suspicion, the safety of hostages might be fairly assured. If the airport was lit up because the terrorists all terrorists already knew that the raiders were coming flying into a trap and the hostages were in grave trouble
0: this is usha raman and i will be reading from two of ian McEwen's books black dogs and enduring love for anyone familiar with McEwen, you would sense a certain comforting sameness across his writing not a boring tedious sameness but a common thread of deeply felt humanity that is at once despairing and hopeful. There is a recognition of a core of evil and ugliness that runs through all of us and it is in overcoming this or confronting it with the goodness that also runs through us that a story emerges. It's also the specificity with which large scale events affect each one of us and changes our lives forever. The first extract is from Black Dogs, a novel set in the immediate aftermath of World War II, when a young man searches for a sense of rootedness in a world torn apart by violence. Here he and his companion look over at a field of graves of those felled in battle. As they drank from their water bottles, he was struck by the recently concluded war, not as a historical, geopolitical fact. But as a multiplicity, a near infinity of private sorrows, as a boundless grief minutely subdivided, without diminishment, among individuals who covered the continent like dust, like spores, whose separate identities would remain unknown, and whose totality showed more sadness than anyone could ever begin to comprehend. A weight borne in silence by hundreds of thousands, millions, each grief a particular, intricate, keening love story that might have been otherwise. For the first time he sensed the scale of the catastrophe in terms of feeling. All those unique and solitary deaths which had no place in conferences, headlines, history, and which had quietly retired to houses, kitchens, unshared beds, and anguished memories. What possible good could come of a Europe covered in this dust, these spores, when forgetting would be inhuman and dangerous, and remembering a constant torture? All novelists capture our minds and hearts with something that is universal, yet particular, in a way that we are able to become part of the story, a fly on the wall, feeling everything that every character is feeling. The next passage is from the opening pages of Enduring Love, where the protagonist waits for his lover at Heathrow Airport. If one ever wanted proof of Darwin's contention that the many expressions of emotion in humans are universal, genetically inscribed, then a few minutes by the arrival's gate in Heathrow's terminal 4 should suffice. I saw the same joy, the same uncontrollable smile in the faces of a Nigerian earth mama, a thin-lipped Scottish granny and a pale, correct Japanese businessman, as they wheeled their trolleys in and recognized a figure in the expectant crowd. I kept hearing the same sighing sound on a downward note, often breathed through a name as two people pressed forward to go into their embrace.
4: My name is Amita Desai. I'd like to read For Whom the Bell Tolls by John Donne, a 16th century English writer and poet. No man is an island, entire of itself. Each is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thine own or of thine friends were. Each man's death diminishes me, for I am involved in mankind. Therefore send not to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Thank you.
0: There is truth in poetry, there is revelation and fiction, there is the depth of insight in so many words that have found their way into published form. For that next long empty afternoon, find a book and very often you will find yourself. Thanks to those who joined me in today's reading. Ashish Pitti, Divya Bharath, Malini Vagre and Amita Desai. You can find a full list of work featured in this episode in our show notes. The music that bookends the show, as always, is from the track To Be Inspired by Andrew, made available on eon.com. The sound effects are from the University of Southern California's Free Sound Library. If you've enjoyed the show, do share it with others who love books and reading. If you'd like to contribute a reading or curate an episode, or give us some feedback, do write to me at usha.raman at gmail.com. You can find the show on Anchor, Spotify, Pocketcast, Overcast or Google Podcasts. Subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode. New episodes drop every Saturday. Thank you for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy and keep reading.